John chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. As we've been studying the Gospel of John together on Sunday mornings, we have most recently been studying what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Here, Jesus is speaking with His men and teaching them for one last time before He goes uh, on to the cross. And uh, so, in some senses, as we'll see this morning, there are uh, reminders that He gives them uh, as He has been teaching them along the way in His earthly ministry And as I mentioned, we'll see some of that this morning. You may remain seated for our New Testament reading this morning. I'm going to be reading John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. You follow along as I read aloud. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not Speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That is the New Testament reading this morning. May God bless it, and may, uh, would you join me in prayer once again? Lord, we believe that the words that are given for us in translation are inspired by your Holy Spirit in the original autographs, and therefore we have trustworthy translations to be able to read from and to study from, and we believe that your Holy Spirit can now attend to our time and illuminate our minds and our hearts to an understanding and an application of these truths. And Lord, as I always pray, we pray that that would happen this morning. And I pray as well for those who do not know you that are in our midst that They would come to know you through the preaching of your word this morning. May your spirit quicken their hearts, Lord, bring them from death to life, and may you grant them repentance and faith this morning. We trust you for this work, and I pray that you would get me out of the way. Lord, hide me behind the cross and the empty tomb. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Common phrase in the vernacular of our day is seeing is believing. And uh, as many of you know, we lived in Missouri for 12 years, and it's known as the show-me state, right? So according to the Dictionary of Clichés, yes, there is such a publication, the phrase seeing is believing starts to appear in proverb collections from 1639 and on, yet the idea of this uh, seeing is believing dates from ancient Greek times. It is not simply a cliché or an idiom. It finds its roots in philosophical ideology. There's a philosophy called empiricism. 
And it states that one must gain knowledge through what one experiences. And in other words, I know because I observe or I experience something. Now, you're not going to be quizzed on this or anything. Uh, so just believe me when I say so. And this is rooted in what we call epistemology. Again, if you want to write that down and impress somebody at the barbecue this afternoon, that's fine. That's up to you. But how do we know what we know? Empiricism says we know something by observing it or by experiencing it. If there are any PhDs in philosophy here this morning, you can come and correct me later. This is what I got off of that reliable source, Wikipedia. I'm kidding. I got it from a, a dictionary on philosophy, actually. Rationalism, on the other hand, states that we cannot trust our senses to give us the full knowledge of a matter. Therefore, we must test what we observe in order to get to the bottom of it. We either uh, Rationalism says we either know things by intuition or deduction... Or it is a part of our nature. In other words, we know it because it is built into who we are by intuition. And that intuition can drive us to observe something or to experience something and then to deduce what the meaning is of it. The the debate between these two generally comes down to reason and experience. And asking the question, how do we know something is true? How do we know what we know? Further yet, there are some phenomena that we see and do not understand and we need further explanation. Seeing, in other words, can be believing, but there are times when we need someone to help us understand what we have seen. Uh, Take, for instance, a a rainbow. As a child, you're kind of fascinated by these colors in the sky and and, um, we observe it and we, in some sense, experience it by Uh, Some sort of an awe, maybe feeling, but um, how do we, by just looking at a rainbow, deduce what that actually is? Somebody has had to test theories in order to deduce what this beautiful coloring in the sky is. And we can know about things like infraction and... Infraction? I probably said that wrong. I, I don't have these in my notes. It's just... Something I thought of here in the moment, but but somebody had to tell us, had to instruct us about there, about that. Fallen mankind cannot reliably always tell us what we have seen, and therefore, according to this philosophy, how can we believe it? How can we believe it? In our text this morning, Jesus asks an important question of his followers concerning what they have seen while they have been with him. And through it, he is seeking to expand their knowledge and ground their belief in him. And so, here we have a situation where the disciples, they've been been with Jesus for three and a half years. They've certainly seen things that they cannot explain. And he has sought to explain it to them. They've certainly experienced things themselves that they cannot explain. And he seeks to explain it to them. And... Uh, he here continues that thought in our text this morning. Here's the main idea this morning. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you are tuning in from home via live stream, it should have been emailed to you. The main idea is as Jesus helps us know and see the Father through the works He does, which are of the Father. Jesus helps us know and see the Father through the works He does, which are of the Father. 
I want us to see this morning three truths Jesus shares as he continues to explain how he is the way to the Father. We must uh, very much see this part of the upper room discourse as couched in what Jesus has just said. So the first truth is this, Jesus is the way to know the Father. So if Jesus is the way to the Father, he's also the way to know the Father. As I've been stating in this section of the Upper Room Discourse, we need to be careful to see the connection to previous verses within this context, but also seeing the way in which Jesus is tying together his entire earthly ministry. And of course, we have uh, the task of looking at the whole of the biblical storyline as well as the theological implications of what he states here. We've got our work cut out for us, in other words, to see how this fits within the context of this passage within the context of John, within the context of all of Scripture that points to this, as well as the theological implications that come about. And, and it, is, it is rich, dear ones. It is, it is rich this morning. So with that in mind, how should we understand verse 7? Look at it again with me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This expands on Jesus' statement of being the way, the truth, and the life. Or, or as I stated, uh, uh, as I sum it up in our title, to know Jesus is to know the Father. This is not to say we should not distinguish between the persons of the Godhead as we understand them according to their eternal relations of origin. The Father is the Father, eternally unbegotten. The Son is the Son, eternally the Son, whose essence is eternally from the Father. And the Spirit is the Spirit who is also equal in essence as God and, uh, and the uh, Son eternally uh, breathe Him out as the Scriptures speak of Him as such. But as well, they are one because they are of one essence and therefore there is only one God. But concerning the seeing and knowing of God, John tells us uh, this in his prologue, as we've often referenced, John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And, and so in one sense, as when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, uh, we do understand that as in, a, in part as reconciliation to God. We talked about that last week, that we can only be reconciled exclusively through the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect life, death, and resurrection. But the only way to see God, to know God in the way that Jesus expresses Him, as John says in John chapter 1, verse 18, is through the incarnation of the Son. Part of Jesus' incarnational ministry is to make the Father known. And Jesus is telling them this is the uh, final teaching with them, and he's reiterating this. Not surprisingly, this uh, comports with Old Testament theology with which the disciples and other Jews would be familiar. Think about the exchange between Yahweh and Moses. Keep your finger in John chapter 14 and make a big left hand turn in your Bible back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to want to turn almost all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you get to the book of Table of Contents, you've gone too far. But it goes Genesis, Exodus. So Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. This is a rather long passage here. We're going to read into chapter 34, but I want you to see 
how the scriptures uh, not only has individual authors, but also has one divine author, how these things tie together in God's revelatory program. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, uh, Yahweh, the Lord, and Moses are having an exchange. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, that is God says, Yahweh says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. He, He will proclaim his name as the I am, the Lord. That's what that means. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's interesting that in divine revelation, uh, Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 9 as God's way of saying it is his sovereign choice as to whom he will show mercy, as to whom he will show grace and compassion. Verse 20, but... He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Does that sound like something we've been studying in the Gospel of John? And the Lord Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall pass, I'm sorry, where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, cut for yourself two tables of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to the Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen through all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Can I just pause for a moment and and explain why? Because the holiness of God will be so radiant that they would die. Verse 4, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai. And as the Lord Yahweh had commanded him and took took in his hands the two tablets of stone, the Lord Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, The name of the Lord Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now listen to this. Let me me contrast this real quickly for you. Listen to this and then stop and then listen to me first. Okay. Think about this. Moses came down from the mountain, saw the people worshiping a false idol, the the golden calf. and, And Moses is so frustrated and angry that he breaks the stone tablets. This is now the point at which God is going to reissue his law on the stone tablets. A a, a memorial to Israel of of God's perfections. A memorial of of God's covenant that if they were able to keep it perfectly, they would be able to live. But the point of which is you cannot keep it perfectly, thus you cannot live. So think of the emblematic idea of these stone tablets. And then think of the contrast of this. So Moses is going to the top of the mountain to have God rewrite the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, on these stones. And yet before he does that, this is what happens. Verse 6, the Lord Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed. I love this. 
Let, let your hearts be rejoicing this morning as you hear this, saints. The Lord Yahweh, the Lord, the I am and the I am, the, I, the ever-existing one, a God, listen, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Just pause there for a moment. What is Moses going to the top of the mount to do? To receive the law. To receive written down what is already written on man's hearts, according to Paul in Romans chapter 2. But, but an emblem that, that, that the children of Israel can look at and say, that is God's law. But who is this Yahweh God? Who is this ever existing one? The Lord. The Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. He begins with grace, mercy, and compassion. However, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord Yahweh, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Not far, you can turn back over to John chapter 14, not far into the progress of God's revelation, he tells Moses in Israel that he is doing works that display who he is. What are those works that display who he is? Well, he writes down his law so that both by natural revelation and by special revelation, man cannot deny the existence of God. Man cannot, cannot deny that they are in rebellion against God. But also, his works are of great compassion, mercy, and grace. And he forgives iniquity. But there must be a payment for the guilt of mankind. He is gracious and merciful and compassionate but it is not without a payment. These works that God is doing culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. So as Jesus says here, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and none can come to the Father except through Him. Why? Because everyone has iniquity that must be paid for. God is gracious and compassionate and merciful And that culminates in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus here is meeting with his men mere hours before he goes to do the most ultimate work in regard to compassion and mercy and grace. And he says to his men, I am the way. I am the way. He is the way to the Father and he is the way to know the Father In salvation history, the eternal Son of whom all the Bible, when it speaks of God, speaks of Him, 
is the personal revelation of the triune God in history. But why is Jesus saying this in light of what he has just said about being the way, the truth and the life, and the exclusive way to the Father? I like what John Calvin says in his commentary. He, he says, quote, Jesus confirms that it is a foolish and pernicious curiosity when men, not satisfied with Jesus, attempt to go to God by indirect and crooked paths. They admit that there is nothing better than the knowledge of God, but when he is near them and speaks to them familiarly, they wander through their own speculations and seek above the clouds him who do they, they do not deign to acknowledge as present. In other words, what has the world, what, what have the Jewish leaders done so far? They've got God walking with them. Here is God in flesh and humanity sitting before them, and yet they do not grasp the reality of it. And even his own disciples do not grasp this at the time. Fully. If Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, he is not saying <clears throat> this is this as someone who is outside of the Godhead, pointing to the reality of God like some sort of a road sign. But as he says this, he is also confirming that he is God. Do you get that? He's not just saying, hey, follow me because I can get you to God. No, he's saying, I am God, and I am the way to the Father, to be reconciled to the Father. And I, who sit before you, am God. I am the way not only to the Father, but to know the Father. This has massive theological implications, as we have seen and will continue to see. But at this moment in our study, what implications does this have for us? Well, if you are one who has trusted, I'm sorry, if you are one who is not trusted in Christ, it is vital that you understand why Christ, what Christ is saying here and why he says it. There is no time to play around with this information. Jesus is either who he says he is or he is not. And if he is not, as C.S. Lewis famously said, he is either a, a lunatic or a liar. So this morning, if you're here and you're not in Christ, you have to grapple with this truth that Jesus gives here, that he is God, that he is the way to be reconciled to the Father. And then as believers, the question for us is, are we finding satisfaction in God through his revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ? In some senses, are, we might want to ask, are we grateful for knowing the Lord as new covenant saints? Are we pointing people to the reality of who Jesus is and that he explains God to us? Jesus is not the road sign, but we are the road sign. We are pointing to the triune God and saying, you can only know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints believed in the coming Messiah and understood to some degree what it meant for God to come and dwell amongst them. And in reality, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' earthly ministry, here he is. Though, as is usual with the disciples, even those who are closest to Jesus, he needs to further explain this as we see in our following point. Number two, Jesus is the way to see the Father. Jesus, number one, in our text this morning, is the way to know the Father. Number two, Jesus is the way to see the Father. In light of what Jesus says, Philip speaks up and makes a request of him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 14. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Again, we're struck with the simplicity 
and honesty here. We should not look down at the disciples and their lack of understanding. We likely would be thinking the same thing or struggling with the same thing. It is, though, however, nonetheless a rebuke to what they have observed. Calvin again states, there is not one of their faults that is here described that may not be charged on us as well as on them. We profess to be earnest in seeking God, and when he presents himself before our eyes, we are blind. End quote. It's interesting that this is, this is the question, uh, uh, Philip, it kind of is mirrored today by skeptics in our, in our generation. If God would just reveal himself, I would believe in him. Of course, Scripture talks of natural revelation and also special revelation of the Scriptures, as well as the ultimate revelation of Jesus as the author of Hebrews speaks when he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So Philip, in his honesty, asks a question. But it is a bit of a conversation of rebuke here from the Lord Jesus. Notice Jesus' response here. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Have you been with me so long and still you do not know me, Philip? In what sense does Philip not know him? I mean, they're there with him. They know that he is Jesus. They've seen him work miracles. They've heard him preach the gospel. They have heard him more or less say that he is the Messiah and also proclaim the I am statements that the Gospel of John helps us see, the very nature of God, the I am statements. He knows him as a friend and as a teacher. He knows him as the one who's proclaimed the gospel. He knows him as the one who's performed signs and wonders. He knows him as the one who's professed these I am statements. Jesus clarifies this in the rest of verse 9 in the the following verse, beginning of the following verse as well. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And that the Father is in me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In what sense has one seen the Father if they have seen Jesus? Jesus answers this, as we just saw, with a question. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And this is rhetorical. This is not Jesus saying, uh, hey, if you kind of figure this out, let me know. No, this is reality. This is how you ought to understand things, Philip, is what he's saying. Jesus asked this retrospectively. That is, in his view, all he has said and done in the presence of his disciples should point to this reality And this is a thoroughly Trinitarian claim. A thoroughly Trinitarian claim that he makes here. And and it's really important for our understanding of Christ and what we call in theology Christology. It it speaks of what we call, and this is a big word, co-inherence. Co-inherence. Dr. Stephen Wellam writes, Within the Godhead, the three persons interpenetrate each other. And then quoting Don McLeod states this, This idea taken spatially, that means within space and time, 
means that each person and all the persons of the Trinity occupy and fill the same space. So there's a, a temporal sense in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I mean, we're talking about omnipresence here, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit are equally omnipresent, though at the time of the Incarnation, Jesus is also physically present with them. Remember, we're not talking about a Jesus who is somehow separated from the Trinity. He is present with them both in body and omnipresence of being God. So there's this interpenetration of the Trinity in space and time. Further, Wellam helpfully continues to tell us, as God reveals himself and acts in the world, where in creation, providence, or redemption, he reveals himself and acts as one God. Yet the one God who reveals himself and acts in the world is triune. Since all three persons co-inhere in a single nature, there is no action of one person that does not involve the action of the others. There is no sense in which the Son is acting apart from the Father or the Spirit. This is what Jesus means when he says, The Father is in me and I am in the Father. And the words I say, I do not speak of my own authority, and the Father does the works. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. They are inseparable in regard to the one will of God, in regard to the one action of God, through the outworking of that will and action in accordance to their person as Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, John 1.18 Right? The Son has revealed the Father to us. Jesus is the embodiment of the Godhead, as Colossians says. It pleased God that the fullness of God would dwell in the humanity, the additional nature that was added to Jesus when he came to earth. So you have, I mean, here, here's, the, here's the beautiful mosaic that's painted for us in just these few words. It is Emmanuel, God with us. Not just the Son of God. The eternal triune God is filling up, as it were, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we're not to not distinguish the persons of the Godhead. There is one God and three persons, so the actions of Jesus in the Incarnation are uh, the one action of the Godhead, but seen through the Son. And so Jesus says to Philip, have you been with me so long that you do not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Why is this so important? Like, Jason, this feels like a theology class. Good. Theology is important. Doctrine divides. Yes, amen. Doctrine divides. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, therefore also eternally God, you cannot be a Christian. Well, theology is stuffy and it's uh, for the ivory tower. No, it is for the pews, for us to worship God. Why does this matter? As Christians, we need to know who God has revealed himself to be, not only to have good theology, but also for the sake of worshiping him as he is. Jesus is expanding the worship of the disciples here. And yes, we sit on the other side of that divine revelation. We 
know how the story ends, don't we? We have the book of Revelation. We know that God wins, but we also know that a day of judgment is coming. Where the thoughts and intentions of men will be exposed. And and those thoughts and intentions are false if they do not comport with what God's word says about who he is. Therefore, our knowledge of God is super important. Not just for our justification. And I'm not saying that somebody needs to understand all these things in, in order to come to faith in Christ. But it is true nonetheless when they do come to faith in Christ. Therefore, as they grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? That they grow, yes, in understanding. But as our understanding expands, our worship also expands. Therefore, if you are not in Christ, the question here is one of utmost importance. Who is Jesus Christ? If you do not answer that in accord with who he has revealed himself to be, you cannot be a Christian. You must Turn from your sins and trust in Him as the way, the truth, and the life. Who is the way to the Father, the way to know to the to, way to know the Father, and the way to see the Father. Lastly, Jesus does the work of the Father. If He is the way to the Father, He is the way to know the Father and see the Father. We also understand that in Trinitarian understanding of who Jesus is, He does the works of the Father. Jesus solidifies his statement by once again explaining the reality of what he says and does as that which is from the Father. Look at it with me again, the latter, uh, latter part of verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's a reiteration of that rhetorical question. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. This is an echo of earlier truths that Jesus has given to his disciples. Uh, Keep your finger in John 14 and turn back to John chapter 5. There's there's a few other places we could go, but but here is at least one place where we see this. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Let me pause for a moment and and, and tell you, Jesus is not saying, I'm incapable of doing this. He's saying, no, a part of who I am is that I do the works that the Father does. This is part and parcel of Trinitarian understanding. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor The Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's one place in John, there's more, that expresses exactly what Jesus is saying here. You can go back over to John 14. Seems reasonable to understand that He is reminding them of this truth because this is His last time with them before He goes to the cross. Jesus' authority as the eternal Son is not in question here. However, as the incarnated Son, one who is seen by others as simply human, 
He works as one who is sent from the Father into the world to accomplish the Trinitarian mission. The Father does his work in and through the person of the Son. This is, again, reflective of the work that John gives in the prologue in John chapter 1 and verse 1. And if, we, if I asked you to, you could all recite it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things made, were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. We see that Trinitarian work being worked out in creation and now in the incarnation through what Jesus does in his earthly ministry. This speaks to what we call in theology the inseparable operations of the Trinity. As each works according to their relation of origin, they are not in cooperation, but working as one. One will, one action that is seen in space and time through Father, Son, and Spirit. And why is that? Look again at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. By the way, this is an imperative in the original language. This, this believe is not um, uh, anything but a command. Believe this. Believe this. Believe this is what you ought to do. Believe what I say, and this is verified by what I do. Now listen. We will not grasp perfectly the inner workings of the Trinity, the inseparable Trinity. But we believe it nonetheless. Because this is how God has explained himself to us. As those who are in Christ, we must wrestle with the difficulties of theology. Not in order to be puffed up with knowledge, but to know the God who has revealed himself to us. It is not easy, but it is driven by Faith, not ease. It's driven by faith. And at the end, it is all about Him. It's not all about us. It is about worshiping God as He has revealed Himself. Understanding what Jesus says here expands our worship. As we grow in our understanding and thus our worship, we are to disciple one another in these truths. Call each other to believe these truths and call each other to worship the triune God. We are to remind each other of grace and truth and gently rebuke when sin is prevalent and care for souls that are hurting with these truths. Who is God? (laughs) I mean, what a comforting thought, dear saints, to know the answer to that question. Thinking again of what Calvin said earlier, there there are those who want and think that knowledge of God is a good thing. Yet when God presents himself in the person of Jesus Christ, they try to get around that to get to God. And sometimes even as Christians we may do that. We need to be reminded of who God is and his good news to us. Not that we are capable of somehow making ourselves right with God, but no, Jesus Christ has revealed God to us and he came to do the works of God, the ultimate work of living a perfect life, going to the cross, dying in the place of sinners and being raised again, which, by the way, is the hope for those of us who are in Christ. We are being conformed to His image, and one day we will be perfectly conformed, and sin will no longer be an issue. And then, dear ones, we have the extreme privilege to proclaim this truth to those who have not believed. What a joy. 
to encourage one another with these truths and to also proclaim there is only one way to be reconciled with God. And we need to be reconciled with God because we are sinners. For the unbeliever, I say to you this morning, this is the God of the Bible. You must believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father and that when you trust in him, you are trusting in one who is God and that he reveals God to us and he has said that sinners must be judged. And yet we remember that he has already been judged for those who will believe in him at the cross. Trust in him today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come now and ask that you would do your work in our hearts, Lord. Take away anything that I've said that would be a distraction. Only let us see you, Father, Son, and Spirit, as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, as the one who has come and lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserved and was raised again, ascended on high as the only exclusive means to be reconciled. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day of faith, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. And for those who have, Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, that we might be encouraged, that we might worship you, Lord, for who you are, how you've revealed yourself to us. Even as we struggle to comprehend all of what that means, Lord, we know that we do not know fully that when we see you, we will be like you. And we long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And now we pray, Lord, as we come to your table, that we might be refreshed in remembrance, strengthened by this means of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.